title of it is How Caregiving Affects Your Heart. And I think when we think about caregiving, it really does impact your heart. If you love someone, right, if you love someone enough to be their caregiver, it's going to impact your heart. You can't help but have it. And so I want to take this to give you just a little background in terms of the research on caregiving, what we know of the impact caregiving has in terms of our cognitive health, our mental health, and then our heart. But then I also want to talk about the stages of caregiving and then with some final thoughts, if that's acceptable to you. You know, I think when we think about caregiving, it really isn't for the faint of heart. That we've got 3.9 million Americans who care for a child only. Are you recording this as well? No. Oh, okay. No, I just, I can't. Oh, okay. Okay, nope. pardon me. Um, sorry, I stand straight. 3.9 million Americans caring for a child alone. 48.9 million Americans care for adults only. And there's another unique group that's emerged, and that's 12.9 million Americans care for both a child and an adult. And we have parents who very generously made the decision to care for a child who has multiple challenges. And that what they find themselves in now as they've aged is now not only are they caring for a child who then becomes an adult child, but also for a parent. And so their ability to, to really respond on the fly um, is enhanced because of that previous caregiving experience. My colleague, Carl Koslowski, who is on the Omaha campus, Rhonda Montgomery, who's out of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, have done extensive work on caregiving and what caregiving entails. And the one thing they talk about is the caregiver identity. You know, and it's interesting because as researchers, we tend to lump everybody together. Just like we say all old people are alike, we say all caregivers are alike. Hi. Hi, Julie. Thanks Hi, Julie. for being here. Chris. Sorry, I'm late. No, don't worry about it. We, we pull everybody together, but what Koslowski and Montgomery are saying is each caregiving situation is going to be unique. In some cases, the caregiver may be handling the finances. In other cases, the caregiver may be actually doing personal care or intimate care to making arrangements for placement. So the caregiver is on a very different trajectory based on the situation. So no two caregivers are alike. The expectations about what it's going to be like to be a caregiver is going to vary from person to person. The expectations of what I have to do, my responsibility. That was one of those eureka moments. And you, get, you, 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 learn, you learn to know who's going to be in your corner real quick. It'll be based on an existing relationship. So if you already have a relationship with that person as a spouse or as the child that the parent seems to go to, that tends to be how it's going to play out in terms of the caregiving. Now, somebody may raise their hand and say, wait a second, I'm an only child. Well, if you're the only child, that's absolutely who it's going to turn to. And then I think this is important. You know, it's interesting that we come up with a slew of services and say to caregivers, you need this, you need that. But unless the caregiver says himself or herself, I need this, they're not going to use the service. The other thing, and it'll be brought up, but in, a, in another side, we also know that those services have to be provided on a routine basis. They can't just be hit and miss in order for the person to realize the benefits of the service. What I mean by that is it might be having someone come in and provide respite once a week or having someone who would be responsible. What we found with the Alzheimer's study, it was about somebody cleaning out the gutters or somebody washing the windows. You might think, well, that doesn't seem very taxing. 
can be really taxing if you're trying to keep an eye on your loved one and at the same time thinking if I don't get these gutters clean and if we ever have rain it's going to be a problem. That part about ever have rain was meant to be humorous. <laughs> so every now and then I'll, I'll point that out. All right. As far as depression, you know what's interesting is that the care receiver is able to stay in the community longer if they have a caregiver. They know that they can stay, and that shouldn't surprise you by any stretch, but it's putting it into perspective. The other thing that we know, and this is where you're so lucky to have someone like Floyd in your midst, caregiving has an impact not only on our physical health. I know caregiving for my dad, I put on 20 pounds. It's still there. It's just decided to stay with me, even though uh, I go to Zumba. But it's not just our physical health, but our mental health. It's, it wears on you. Because you wonder, am I making the right decisions? Am I doing the things that are going to be good for the person that's receiving that care? It's interesting, though, and I, and I want to take this approach, is that I think sometimes we, we focus solely on the burden side of caregiving, but that we also know that caregivers say it's a privilege. It is a privilege to be able to do for my parents, or it is a privilege to be able to do for my spouse. Although it can be very difficult, it can be a privilege. And then we already mentioned this, but the idea of regular assistance can make a difference. Being willing to, to open yourself up to receiving regular assistance. As far as cardiovascular disease, that's that heart connection, there is a connection between emotional strain and cardiovascular disease. That shouldn't surprise you. You, know, you just have continually uh, that pounding of being a caregiver. I have a cousin, I'll show you a picture of him, who was a caregiver for his mom for 13 years. And his mom had, had a stroke. He left his profession as a trust officer for a bank and made a conscious decision that he would deliver care for her. He had two sisters on both coasts. They weren't going to be part of the equation. They said, put her in a nursing home. He said, no, I'm going to keep her at home. Now, and we'll talk about kind of the difference because we had to put my dad in a nursing facility at Brookstone Meadows because he was 6'6 at full height. There was no way we could have cared for him. Okay, and that's, I'll, I'll get to that in just a second. But what was interesting though is he said, you know, for that 13 years, I was on high alert. How many of you feel that way as caregivers, that you're on high alert? Yeah. Even when you're on, even when you take a break or have respite, you're still on high alert because you're wondering when that phone rings or that idea, I can't take off. It was interesting when you mentioned the woman who was taking care of her parents, she wanted to come, but she couldn't because your high alert's not only being the caregiver, but your high alert's your job too because you've got to stay on task because it could be tomorrow or at two o'clock, the phone may ring and you may need to respond. I noticed in the last slide you mentioned, and you may have said something, but my hearing isn't that good, about the difference between regular versus intermittent yes. caregiving. I mean, or assistance. Services, support. Yeah, right. Because right. I think that's that's a critical issue that I don't think is understood very well. Caregivers think, well, if I just get it once in a while, and that doesn't, that's that can help, but it's not as much as regular. Exactly. But what we found from the caregivers that, particularly with the Alzheimer's projects, was the idea that Tomorrow may be worse, so I don't want to take advantage of my, my resources or my surplus because I may need that tomorrow. 
But what we know of, and what's interesting from the literature, is caregivers typically wait until things have gotten so bad to tap in the services, and then the time between using services and placement is pretty short because now things have gotten to the point where there's, there is a need for greater assistance. However, for those that tap into it earlier on, they can keep the person out in the community longer. But are, that's you, but, are you, excuse me, but are you talking about the caregiving, the care receiver, and you're talking about the caregiver getting support? Correct. Well, it's the caregiver that is drawing on the resources to help the care receiver. But are you also, I thought the slide was referring to the caregiver seeking out support for themselves, not for more additional or different supports for the uh, person needing care. Actually, it's, it's the latter. And it's where the caregiver is getting services or support out in the community to support the care receiver. But here's the thing I would tell you is by getting support, that allowed the caregiver to get away right. and to get a break. And I think that's the thing, when you're in it 24-7, you just sometimes need a break. And that's what that's in reference to. And maybe what it is is having somebody help with baths, and, and maybe you're not to that point yet, but somebody who can help with bathing, somebody can help the person get up in the morning or to, to go to bed in the evening. Did that help? Yeah, but I'm okay. logging questions for you later. <laughs> Good. No, that's all right. I'd like to add that. I'd like to add that if the person makes a conscious decision to uh, use a regular caregiver and then they take care of themselves in that process, now, not just by doing that, but going out and doing exercising whatever they need to do to care for themselves instead of waiting until they just can't do it anymore, right. they, I mean, as I want, they break down. I mean, that's quite possible. And, and what we see is, is an increase in morbidity and mortality of the caregiver and so very well-meaning people say, I'm going to do it all myself, then they become ill, break a hip, whatever, or die, God forbid, but they die. And then, then now, now what do we do with the care receiver? Because we have to make a decision. And so it's, it's, you, know what, it's all, you know how you hear it's all about moderation? It's all about moderation. And it's trying to temper... And you didn't have the benefit of hearing me say this. I'm here both professionally as, as someone who works in the field of gerontology, but personally because I also, with my brother, was caregiver for my father. And it's about tempering, tempering the enthusiasm. Because the thing I'm going to talk about is I'm going to talk about the beginning stages, the enduring stage, but then I'm also going to talk about post-caregiving. And that's something sometimes people don't talk about. But there's going to be a time where you're, you're going to find yourself not in that role. And so where do you get that support? And we'll, we'll talk about that. We know that if you give caregivers tips and techniques for managing depression, that that tends to help them down the road. So working with, with folks like Floyd through employee assistance, uh, to be able also to address problems beha problem behaviors of the care recipient. Maybe you have, maybe you're caregiving to people who every day thank you and hug you and say, I love you and I'm so grateful for everything you're doing. And gee, that's a cute dress. And, and everything's fine. But there are some caregivers who care for people that the person they're caring for, they've lost control. 
And so the only way they can get control back is sometimes to lash out at the caregiver. And so it's finding ways to manage those behaviors. The other thing, and this was uh, some research done about cardiovascular disease and dementia caregivers, the idea that healthcare professionals are in an ideal position to be able to work with caregivers to seek ways to, to relieve their distress. I have a friend who, a high school friend, who is caregiving for her mother and father. Her mother has a liver disease that now is to the point, and it's not from alcohol, it's, it's uh, a liver disease that she's had for years. It's gotten to the point now where they're moving into hospice. And this gal was having such a difficult time getting in to talk to her doctor. I thought it was kind of a creative caregiving, but she called up and made an appointment for herself because she said, oh, I've got some foot problems. And she said, that's, my, that's what I'm telling them, I've got foot problems, so that she could get in and see the doctor to be able to get answers. Because I think what happens too, for, it's interesting to me, but caregivers are very creative. You strike me as a very creative person. <laughs> you would know how to, to, to be able to manage that. I'm not endorsing that you call and make an appointment <laughs> to see your doctor. Write that down. But what I'm saying is that sometimes you have to be very creative to be able to manage the situation. She's somebody that got into a negative balance on her vacation time because she wasn't going on vacation. It was all about the caregiving. So finding a way to relieve the distress. And by seeing her doctor, he could see not only the problem, learn about the problem her mom was having, but also, and in this case she has liver disease, so she has multiple doctors. But for the doctor to see not only what was happening with the mother, but with her as well. I want to talk a little bit about the stages of caregiving. And I think there's that first stage, and I call it BC, and that's before caregiving. And if you, if you have people in your life that are not in the throes of caregiving, they're kind of happy-go-lucky, and life's good, and they're free as birds, right, that pre-caregiving. They have no clue what you're under, I think. Maybe I'm wrong. But I think sometimes that's one of those things, and I mentioned that earlier, you almost have to experience it yourself to fully appreciate Life is not happy-go-lucky at this moment. But it begins. And the thing about caregiving in that stage of care, or the stages of caregiving, and we try to make things neat and orderly, and I don't mean to imply it's all in stages, but it's about when mom or dad or the spouse goes to the doctor and they get this long list of things they're supposed to do, and then they go home and try to figure out how to get the meds sorted. That's when you start noticing. With my dad, it was... He, he was running a business. He had his own real estate company. And going to see his wife had, had died suddenly and of a heart attack and going over there to be with him and then watching him and he would open a bill and he'd throw it away. He'd open another bill and he'd throw it away. And I thought, this isn't good. We've got some problems. And then some other things came about from a business standpoint that it warranted an, an assessment and come to find out he had early Alzheimer's disease. I share that with you because it was one of those things where not only was it caring for him physically, but also his business and keeping an eye on the books because he also had started a business or a housing development. And all this is going on, the guy's ready to turn 80. Why I'm telling you this is it's one of those things where it can be insidious that things have been going on for a while and you have no clue. And then all of a sudden something pops and you say, wait a minute, we need to look at so it's an awareness something isn't quite right. You, you get that sense. It's, 
Does that sound familiar to anybody? You get that sense. Are you caring for someone that has cognitive impairment, dementia? Anybody? Okay. It's insidious. Because <clears throat> people are good. We're very social animals. And things look pretty good, but then all of a sudden, right, an awareness. Bill's not getting paid. A person who's normally clean and tidy, their home is normally clean and tidy. Now things are taking a different turn. Hopefully that's not the only marker of dementia, because if that's the case, some of us already probably could be <laughs> given that label. We'll have to get one of those you things to clean out the office. But then, so you notice things aren't going quite right, and then you realize, you know what, I need to get some information. So you can start kind of searching around. That's the thing about Google and a WebMD. All of a sudden you, you think, I better start looking things up, because you know something's not right. This is the encounter stage. It's also about receiving and understanding the diagnosis. You know, you get that diagnosis and you think, this can't be. This cannot be. I can't believe this is happening. Because today is the day that your loved one happens to be all together and life's going good. And they go to see the doctor and the doctor says, what's wrong? Nothing. My daughter wanted me to come here or my, my wife wanted me to come here. It's like, no, oh, there's a little more to this story. I had somebody say to me one time, when I got the diagnosis, it was like a knife through my heart. Because if you know what's down the road, it is like a knife through your heart. The new beginning shock and disbelief, and that's normal. Anytime we get that kind of news, you can't help but be shocked and surprised. To change this in expectation, <coughs> my friend from high school, she's, and her mom has dementia that is a consequence of the liver disease and basically her body's not processing um, fluids well enough so all those toxins are going to her brain. She said, you know, I couldn't understand why we would go to Kohl's and my mom would stand there for an hour looking at, pardon me, boy, looking at bras. And then every week she'd buy a new bra, take it home, and every week I'd have to go take that new bra, take it back, and get, you know, because this was just, but it was just something that was important to her that she needed to do. And she said, it used to just drive me crazy. And I'd have to go into another area because I thought, how many, how much can you look at? They don't change, I don't think they change that much. And she said, but now that I know, it's okay. Because I get that. I get that. A need to make decisions. You know, sometimes we have to do that on the fly. And sometimes if we haven't been the decision maker and now the responsibility turns to us, it's like, oh, I'm going to make a decision. And boy, that's not necessarily what I want to do, but somebody's got to do it. I tend to move a lot, so if I come at you, bear with me. So this active caregiving is the next what we're going to talk about. It's about greater responsibility, taking on not only their, your life, but their life. Settling in with the role. You know, I, I think when you do think about things in stages, it's like the beginning of the semester and you've got people knocking at your door wanting this and that and everything's going crazy and then you kind of get into that rhythm. Right? You get into that rhythm. I think that's sometimes caregiving can be like that. You start to get into a rhythm, a rhythm. It's a settling in. It's hard. Ooh, it's harder than and all get out, but you get to settling in. The dependence by the care receiver. They may be madder in heck than you, at you about whatever, but there is that sense of dependency. 
because they're looking to you to take care of them. Because here's the thing, they know they're vulnerable. They may not be able to articulate it, they may not be able to say it, but they know. They know, you know, it's my father would used to say, I got tagged. Kind of like in a hunting analogy, I guess, I got tagged. And I thought that was interesting. He wouldn't say that to me, but he knew. He knew. Change in terms of, of relationships, work, family, careers. You know what's interesting is that what we discover, we discover this in death too. I teach death and dying, so that's why I'm going to talk about death every now and then. So bear with me. That people that had been in our lives in that pre-caregiving stage may step away from us for a while. Has anybody had that happen? Or maybe not. Sometimes that happens for caregivers. Is that the people that were journeying with us all the way, once we start caregiving, they kind of back, they retreat, they recoil, because it's too much for them. Death sometimes is like that too when you have, you know, we've experienced a loss. People you thought would be there are not there. But the people you least expect show up. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of, but it's about what people can give and what they can offer. We also know that the future changes. It's defined. It's not about six months or a year or two years. Sometimes it's day to day. And that's, that is what it is. That's all right. You have to learn to adjust your thinking as part of the enduring. <laughs> now, the heart. When I took French a hundred years ago, and not very successfully, the one thing that I remembered is that old French heart is cur. Cur. Courage, right? Courage. It takes heart to be a caregiver. It takes heart to care. So I want to talk about courage in relation to caregiving. So I want to give you some things to think about. Plus, can you, isn't that a great face? <laughs> I bet he was in makeup for hours. Okay. If we think about courage, and we're going to break it down as far as compassion, opportunity, unconditional love, resourcefulness, aptitude, gratitude, and endurance. Now, in our society, this is about compassion. Our society suggests that caring and living are quite separate. I'm going to close these doors. Are quite separate and that caring belongs primarily to professionals who have received professional training. Boy, do you think you could help? I don't know about you, but all the banging gets... <laughs> Thank you very much, sir. That caring belongs primarily to professionals who have received special training. Although training is important, although training is important, and although certain people need preparation to practice their profession with competence, Caring is the privilege of every person and is at the heart of every being. Caring is a privilege. To be able to care for someone, to be able to be present for someone is a privilege. We don't realize it sometimes, but it's a privilege. Camus says that to grow old is to aid, to, to grow old is to move from passion to compassion. You know, it's interesting. In our younger years, and just walk around this campus, there's a lot of passion going on. But as you you know, over the summer months, then the compassion starts to show the people that are here. It's an awareness of the other person's suffering. You wouldn't be here if you weren't aware of, of what you're doing as a caregiver and the suffering, because that person is suffering in some capacity. But it's responding to it, and it's so much more than sympathy. We can feel sorry for somebody, that's sympathy. But the empathy, being connected to that person, to live with compassion means to enter others' dark moments. It is to walk in places of pain. 
It's not to flinch or look away when another agonizes, and it means to stay where people suffer. But to do that means we need support. We need some, we need some other support, like this, to help us stay with that person. And good comfort requires empathy, forces adjustments, and sometimes mandates huge sacrifices. Comforters must be prepared to let the pain of another become their own, and so let it transform them. They will never be the same after that decision. I would tell you to be a caregiver and to make that decision, and it's a conscious decision. Maybe it's not one that you necessarily made on your own. It was given to you, um, but you're never the same. You become a much better person, a much different person. Opportunity. When you think about courage and caregiving, it's about opportunity. It's an opportunity to learn new skills, things we never thought we could do. It's about breaking out of, of our typical role, our usual role. And it's about seeking out support from others. I just can't say that enough. It's about seeking out support. So here, you know, I, and I speak to you as someone, my PhDs in gerontology, you think I'd be smart? I'm not smart at all. Because I needed other people to make it happen. And to come to terms with life as it is. To come to terms with life as it is. You know, there's a wonderful book by Cherry Sitster, and the title of it is Grace Disguised, date blah blah blah, A Grace Disguised: How the Soul Grows Through Loss. This was a man who had his wife, his mother, and his daughter all killed by a drunk driver. And you, you know, you think after something like that, you just say, "I'm done." But he had other kids to raise, and so he made a conscious effort to pick himself up and just say, "How am I going to work through this?" And he said, instead of, why me? Because when she said, why me? What did I do wrong? Right? It becomes, why not me? But the why not me is tied to, can I, can I expect to live an entire lifetime free of disappointment and suffering, free of loss and pain? And that sometimes we're given opportunities that there's a privilege to that. There's a reason why, and it may not make sense today. I keep looking to you because we're at that angle. <laughs> It doesn't make sense today, but there's a reason why we're given that opportunity. I say to the students, you know, you, you'll say, well, you know, as far as having, not getting a good grade, and you'll say, why me? And it's, well, why not you? And how often when good things happen, do we say, why me? I'm trying to learn that. When something good happens, I should say, when I run into Floyd, I should say, why me? How did I get so much? He knows I think he's a good soul. Unconditional love. It's about making the life of the other person better. That was the one thing my cousin kept talking about. He wanted to make his mom's life better. He said it's not just the, the quantity of her life, but it's quality. Quality. Seeing the weakness and the vulnerability of our loved one and still being present, even if the doors open a crack. I remember sitting in a doctor's office with my dad, and for some reason he, he didn't recognize me that day. And it just it was it just kind of hit, and the door was open a crack. You know, it was one of those things. I thought, man, I could make a run for it here. <laughs> of course, people notice, uh, but it's staying with him because it was also seeing how vulnerable he was. Okay. So resourcefulness. I keep going back to my dad, so I hope you'll bear with me. But he always said you needed three people in your life. You needed a good doctor, a good lawyer, and a good priest for different reasons, but it made sense. A good doctor, a good lawyer, and a good priest. I would add, you also need a good accountant, 
a good case manager. You need the lawyer to help you with the financial or in the with the advanced directives and things. But you need a good accountant with the financial, a good case manager, a good EAP counselor, right? You need somebody that you can turn to, and a good friend. You know, it's interesting. There, there will be a friend that will emerge out of this you hadn't anticipated. A good friend. It's about drawing on resources to get you through. But it's about realizing we can't do it alone. I was on the phone once, twice, three times a week to the office on aging to folks that I knew to be able to say, what can I do? Okay, I've got this problem. He was in a period of six months, he fell and broke his hip, which really was a mixed blessing because he was still driving and we were grateful he was no longer driving. Isn't that something? You know, you, the, the miracle that comes out of a broken hip. Six hospital, wait, he moved six times in that six months in five hospitalizations. Every, every week it was just like, okay, you got to move. Have you ever had that with your own loved one? You get the call, I'm sorry, but their benefits have run out, you got to move. And so you move them more, they're like a person in the witness protection program. It is amazing how quickly you can pack them up and move. And you do it with elegance and in the still of night, right? <laughs> This is a picture of my cousin seated, and that, that was his mom. In the background is my oldest brother, Skye. And it's about aptitude. And, and the reason why I want to show you this slide, because we're in a room with, with women that are caregivers and Floyd. And I make that distinction. And I, you're, care, you're a caregiver every day in your job. But we oftentimes don't realize that we can draw on men to help us that men can also, we're seeing more and more men serving as caregivers. And it is that they have that aptitude. Philip Simmons, um, in his book, Learning to Fall, he says, how many of us could have predicted when we first set out from our parents' homes for college or work or marriage, either our achievements or disappointments, how many of us has life turned out the way to, to be exactly what we had in mind? How many did your life turn out that way? I always thought I'd be a size 12. <laughs> Thank you. I'm still holding on to that dress thinking it'll happen. Okay. So gratitude for the people at the store, at the pharmacy, at the bank. You know, sometimes it's, it's the people, again, you least expect. It's buying the stamps at the post office and where that person just gives you a gentle smile. And they are the person at the grocery store. They're some of the nicest people. And there's, it's, it's, it's not, it's kind of like going to, when people go to the bar and they, they share their stories with the bartender, but you don't have time to do that. So it's the grocery store, and they notice. They notice. The pharmacy, pharmacist cutting the pills because you may not have the dexterity to do that or you don't have a sharp enough blade. That those, um, some of those littler pills. For the opportunity to care for our loved one, there's a book, um, Finding Our Way, a Spiritual GPS for Caregivers. And it's, so it's coming from a spiritual standpoint, but for the opportunity to care for our loved one. And it, it's, think about it from this vantage point. It's being entrusted by God with this privilege. Your higher power, however you want to put that, but from the book, using the being entrusted by God with this privilege. And we may think, are you kidding? I am pooped. Enough with the privilege. <laughs> you know, it's that idea, God doesn't give you anything you can't handle, or must love you a lot because he just keeps giving you problems. It's like enough with the problems. You don't need to love me so much. But there's something that was seen about you 
says that you can be there. You know, it's the other thing about for the times our loved ones thank us. And it could be a time when they don't may not be sure who we are. Right? Not all of you are experiencing that, but it's that time when they thank us. And sometimes you have to get it where you can get it. And so sometimes they may not say it to you, they may say it to somebody else. And so it's it's remembering that. Seeing if you can if you can capture that. The enduring stage, we help each other, even unconsciously, each in our own effort. We lighten the effort of others. Sorrow comes in great waves, but it rolls over us, and though it may almost smother us, it leaves us on the spot, and we know that if it is strong, we are stronger in as much as it passes, and we remain. That you learn that at the end of the day, that you're going to still remain standing. And I think that's important to know. You know, I could I could have come in here and I could have sugarcoated everything and said everything's fine and isn't you know throw my hat up in the air and say life's good. And that wouldn't be true. But what is true is that you are working to help lighten the burden of the person you're caring for. And I sure wish, as a culture, we would take more time to highlight the people that do that than some of the other people. We spend three hours watching the Emmy Awards when people in these dresses and suits and things, and I think, these are not the heroes. The heroes are the ones that are caring for a loved one, that are willing to journey. I want to just talk a, a second and just for you to think about it, that there is that phase of post-caregiving, and there's a time where there is a life after caregiving. It's about finding a new identity. You know, it's interesting to me because my cousin, again, who was caring for his mom for 13 years, he said, I don't see myself as anything but a caregiver. And now that she's gone, now I've got I've to recreate myself. But there's that opportunity to do that. That's why it's so good to stay plugged in with other people, to, to stay plugged into other resources so, so it allows for that transition. You know, sometimes we isolate ourselves and we get disconnected. And it's good to find a way. So that's where that respite comes in. A good, uh, stay connected. Being connected in other ways. I used to have Lena Shanks come to my class that I teach on this campus. Um, and she would talk about caring for her husband, Hughes. Um, and, and she said, you know, obviously she missed her husband greatly. But now she had an opportunity to share his story with more people because she wasn't caregiving any longer. She had that opportunity. And being open to support from others who haven't gone for a long time. You know what I've learned? Some of the people will be gone, they'll never come back. But the other ones that replace them, people come in and out of our lives, the new ones, because they, they, they appreciate the new skin you're wearing. To be a caregiver, you get a new skin. How's that sound? You get a new skin, it might be a little bumps, some bumps and bruises and might be stretched a little way, but you get a new skin. And I tell you, at the end of the day, I'd much rather have that skin. And then I just, I want to end with this and then I know that there, some folks have questions. So that's a picture of my dad and he's holding a, a photograph of a buck deer that was on the farm that I live on now, but anyways, and he was so happy and healthy there. 
and I found that a couple of months after he died. And I still and I like to, to look at that. And I would encourage you to do that, to find a picture of your loved one that you can hold on to when they were doing well. Because you have to remember right now you're in the throes and when things are, are not so good, but there was a time when things are good. And that brings me joy. He was so happy by that picture. And by the way, we, we were able to move that on those six moves as well. That would travel with him. We were able to, we kept the bubble wrap and we could move it quickly. Um, I think the other thing too is as, you know, with dementia and that hip and 500 other things, that when we, the last time we saw him, he didn't look that good. So that's why it's good to have it. What does caregiving teach us? It teaches us that we're better than we realize that we have the gifts and the ability to take care of folks. And there are lots of caregiving books, there's lots of caregiving groups, and this is such a wonderful group to come to, so you get ideas. Because caregiving teaches us that, that we can become better people. I really believe that. And I think it also teaches us, I guess in the case with my dad, that now it's my job to be an adult say that at 51, but when I was in my late 40s, you know, I still had that mentality of being kind of a kid. Now, now it's about being an adult. And it's a gift. It's a gift. It still impacts the heart, and that's okay. Because if, you, if your heart wasn't impacted, if you didn't feel, I'd be worried. I'd think, uh-oh, I'm not so sure.